And remember, in the 90s, when I was doing a startup, early 90s, there were only very few you know, non-Caucasian CEOs who had done their own startup. So, But in Silicon Valley, clearly none of those stigmas, challenges, shortage of money exists today. You have the best system in the world in terms of both getting the advice, whether it's legal advice, whether it's startup advice, you have so many entrepreneurs who have succeeded that the chances of you knowing a few of them are way too high today than it used to be at the time I did those companies. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I am your host, Gopi Rangan. In this episode, I talk to Rajiv Madhavan. Rajiv and his partner Chris Rust founded Clear Ventures. I've worked with them on many occasions over the years. It is a pleasure to have Rajiv on the podcast. In today's episode, we will talk to Rajiv about his journey as a successful serial entrepreneur and how he transitioned to the venture capital sector. His last company, he started as a startup in the Silicon Valley and took it all the way to IPO. He has been an angel investor, an active angel investor for many years, and then eventually decided to start a new venture capital firm, Clear Ventures. We will specifically talk about how entrepreneurs have just one chance to win the support of VCs. Rajiv talks to us about how a negative opinion he held was changed in 20 minutes. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Rajiv, tell us about yourself. Well, I've been uh, one of the lucky few who have gone and come to do my grad school in North America, came to Canada, and then came to Silicon Valley. And, you know, at the very beginning and offset of Silicon Valley, within a year, year and a half of me working in Silicon Valley, I moved to doing startups. So since 91, I have done three startups. The first was a company in chip design. Second and third was a chip design software company. Two of them went IPOs, and one was a good success exit with Cadence as well. So, you know, I grew in the balls of Silicon Valley doing startups. I enjoyed the fact that only in this place can you find this kind of talent, this kind of diverse population, this kind of combination of venture capital, combination of great angels and great people who actually give you the advice you need at the right time. Obviously, you have experience of getting the other side as well, which is part and parcel of what you need to do, which is, you know, people who are more about themselves rather than about the company and about forming and, and letting the company succeed. But it's been a great experience since 91 to now. 2019, right? I mean, 2020, where it's been a great experience with a lots of downturns. And interestingly, almost all my startups that have succeeded have happened right after a downturn. So I'm out looking for one right now because <laughs> <laughs> I know this is the time for me. <laughs> no doubt about that. It's great that you see that opportunity. I understand that it's not an easy time for a lot of people right now, but hopefully this creates new opportunities for all of us. I want to ask you a question about an event or a time or someone that had a huge impact on you and how did that happen? 
So to me, you know, I mean, my first, I call my life as, there are three people who have actually done that to me. My, my dad is obviously the one person who obviously believed that I could never do anything wrong. We have no DNA of a startup experience or wanting to do startups in my life, right? And my mom was actually a pessimist, an eternal pessimist in me trying to do a startup, etc. I mean, when I remember when I first left my job at Cadence, actually, when I left from BNR to Cadence, she called me and said, why are you changing jobs from a you know, 10,000 company, person company to 800 people? And then when I joined by myself, a company called Logic Vision, she told everybody that he doesn't know how to keep a job. Right. I mean, he just can't keep a job. That's what she had told everybody. And at that time, my dad was certainly the counter influence of saying, look, uh, if you believe in it, go for it and do it. So after my third uh, company, Magma, went public, when there was an article uh, which is published in India, that was when she was called me and said, OK, you've done something in your life. You know, that's how much entrepreneurial DNA we had in our family. We had absolutely none whatsoever. So having somebody who was giving that encouragement was important. My second person in my life was a professor that I had in my third going to fourth year. I was one of those students who coasted in life, never studied hard, just what is necessary to get to the next level. And here was somebody who set my expectations differently, told me I should do GRE, told me I should do this, that. And, you know, threw me out of the class, but, you know, asked me to come back and explain certain things. So it's, it is having a, a professor like that. Uh, his name was Dr. Savannah, but he just completely changed my life in terms of in the fourth year, having someone redirect you uh, in an engineering school was timely for me. And then in my you know, first job, I had a manager at Wapni who was tough for me. Again, you know, I would coast back to life. I was having fun and, and got my first job and then bought all this stereo equipment, a car and all those kind of things. And what was doing my work, but not doing anything super heavy duty. And, you know, during an April Fool's joke that was played um, in BNR, you know, everybody used to turn down your wax BMS systems and, you know, my machines was torn, my account was torn. And, you know, then everybody would come and say, happy April Fool's Day to you. I wanted to respond to everybody. I broke into the Unix system and brought essentially the whole system down. And Ed called me into my, uh, to his office and he told me, you know, I don't see the same regime Madhavan at work. Uh, you know, the, the regime Madhavan who had that assess to want to attack back and want to work. And it sent me a real clear message and having him there redirect me. Uh, these are all people in your life that, if you think about it, changed you quite dramatically of what he did. And lastly, there was somebody else who, who did it, uh, but that was more coincidental, the founder of Cadence, Jim Solomon. You know, I was on a plane with him. I was working on a new product. He called me to come to the first class. That was my first class trip that I had. We were going to Harris Semiconductor, uh, which is one of, were going to be my one of my first customers in Florida. And I asked him, you know, what would he have done differently at Cadence? And he said, this new analog product you're working on, I probably would have done it as a startup. And what went through my mind was, why, why am I here at Cadence? Why am I not doing a startup? It sort of set a wave of thought process in me. And then the clock could not be turned back. Basically, that is what made me leave. I had no other uh, you know, entrepreneurial DNA, as I told you. So that was the last portion of the journey, but that was more an incidental experience rather than a 
you know, somebody wanting to do that. He spoke too much and it kind of made me realize I should be doing a startup. And that's what made me leave and do a startup. So these are the people who I would say have been incidental in making career decisions that kind of led me into doing startups. Fascinating. I see the right place, right time, right question that provokes your thought and sets you on a path. But I also see the professor and the manager that they seem to be people who believed in you and saw a lot more potential and helped you realize that. Very interestingly, your dad and mom, the dynamics between the two of them, your dad seems to have been this eternal optimist who believed in you that you could do anything. And your mom was this opposite she brought this different kind of perspective where I understand where she comes from. Interestingly, she's the one who had any capability of managing money, frankly speaking, as a startup, because she, you know, had a lot of, uh, she was like a landlord, had uh, apartments that she had given at home, right? My dad basically used to be the guy who spends. If you ask <laughs> him for money, you will get it. My mom, you won't get any money. But, you know, I sort of sit back and I think of it and I go back and I say, it's more her experience of being frugal, stingy, and managing money that I clearly needed in the latter half of my startup life, right? Then that's when you realize why, you know, some of the things that she did, they are absolutely essential. And I had no idea of that at that point, right? I mean, it was like, uh, obviously, go to dad to try to get something. And my mother was a no-go-fly zone for getting anything in my life, right? So, but... You know, as you sit back and you think about it, she was the reason why we could have a life in some sense, because she was the one who saved the money. I mean, my dad gave every check to her and she managed it and did a fantastic job of managing it through her life, basically. So she was the practical person. You made a transition yeah. yourself, like you were a successful entrepreneur, three startups, all successful. You took all the way from beginning to IPO and you were the public company CEO for many, many years. And then you switched to the venture side, although you did have a lot of investment experiences and you've made many investments. Clear Ventures was the firm that you formed and you are the founder of the firm. How was the transition from switching from an entrepreneur to venture capital investor? So this is sort of in, in 98 when I had my first exit, I started investing in startups as an angel. I did uh, you know, 28 investments between 98 and 2012. And part of why I did those investments was not because of, uh, you know, like I really uh, wanted to become a VC or an investor. Part of it was because I loved hearing those technical pitches from the entrepreneurs. And today, I mean, as a VC, learning from the best people in a particular field is the best part of this job as a VC. I mean, you cannot have anybody better than the persons we are meeting with educate you on what a particular field is all about, right? I mean, so that is the best and the most happiest thing. And I needed that while I was doing Magma, mainly because, you know, as a public company uh, with lawyers, accountants, and we also had some big lawsuits, etc. I was uh, spending time with uh, people who are not the most fun, uh, you know, who are the most eternal pessimists in the world. And you need to meet these uh, optimists to counterbalance. So I used to spend Saturdays Spending time with startups as a way to rejuvenate myself, like, you know, I mean, essentially have these founders come home. I would meet one or two of them every week and spend some time if I'm in town. If I'm in customer sites, I can't, but if I'm in town, end up spending time more as a distraction from my day-to-day -day pessimistic surrounding people that you end up with. I mean, your engineering organizations, I made sure at Magma was not that way, but 
the rest of the organizations tend to be that way, especially for the amount of legal and past IPO, the Sarbanes-Oxley, etc., the lawyers and accountants, all of them are doing a very qualified job, but nonetheless, it's always a pessimistic job that uh, their world is operating on. So this was a balance for me, and I've done a lot of investment. As I moved to VC, I can tell you the best thing to me is learning from the best technologists that can explain a particular technology to you. And in many cases, you do find uh, technologists who are driven to a particular passion to execute in a particular product or a particular idea. And their passion drives energy to you. And hopefully your energy in trying to give them advice drives them in the right direction too. You know, there are lots of great things. There are a lot of bad things as well. But fundamentally, uh, you know, it is one of those businesses where the ability to learn certain new things from the best in the world in that particular field is a super exciting experience that you can not get in anything but venture capital. Is it challenging for you sometimes when uh, you see that your portfolio company founders, CEOs, and the executive management team, you know exactly what they need to do? And if you were in their shoes, you knew you would do certain things, a few steps that you would take. As an entrepreneur, I can imagine that you have the urge to tell them what to do or even roll up your sleeves and get into the, the game. And you love being in the middle of the arena and you've done that for so many years. How do you hold back and is it a challenge for you to hold back and let them play the game while you're the coach on the sidelines? So this is, uh, you know, the first two, three years that kind of entrepreneurs I've picked was the entrepreneur I've picked today are vastly different. In the first two, three years when I picked, I mean, it's I always give this example. Uh, it's almost like, uh, a new professor being minted at a particular school who's got a few PhDs. They look for the super coolest technical idea loans where technology dominated 80% of the market, not the team or the market, right? The technology and the, just the market was the decision point that I had made much of my decision on. You assume that the technologies will put his heart and soul. You assume that he'll work hard and you assume that he has some business acumen in, in himself. And all three of those assumptions were, have been you know, not true in probably 60% of the cases. So essentially, I have morphed myself to understand that 40% of, of the decision is about the person at the stage of seed and series A investments. Uh, obviously, if the market is not right, and if you don't believe in the market, it could be the most Superman technologist, Superman executioner, he or she is going to fail. So market is number one. And technologist is number two. And it probably was technology number one and market as a secondary play that I used to look at. So I have morphed myself. And this morphing is because, you know, very quickly you realize in the VC business that much as you feel like you could do some things, you cannot do anything. You are just a coach. You can tell them what it is and, and you see them make mistakes and the blood pressure just keeps going up for you. It never really has anything that you can do. You can just tell them and keep telling them. You need founders who are willing to look at opposing viewpoints to understand what are the issues and to learn from these issues, right? Rather than, you know, kind of go and, and I absolutely want people who tells me that, hey, you're full of it and you really don't understand it. I absolutely enjoy working with those people. But the fundamental thing that needs to happen in a startup is you need an entrepreneur who's very super excited about his idea, but also has the technical 
acumen and the business acumen to be able to execute it or to bring in the right people into the team to execute it. So you realize that as you make the transition from the coach, I think I was less of a coach earlier on than today. I mean, today it's a 100% coaching job, but picking the right players is all a coach can do, right, to, at the very beginning. And that's the single best decision I can make. When you look at an opportunity, let's assume, let's take an example of a, a startup that you decided to back. At a moment when no one else believes in the idea, how do you choose to get behind the entrepreneur and support them? Can you give an example of one situation? So I will give you one where I actually did the opposite. I mean, I met with a company called Admosic. It's a Bluetooth chip company. David and Masood are known to me previously. I know they also knew a lawyer that I knew well, but Masood was at Qualcomm and Atheros before that. And as an EDA vendor, we have uh, talked to these people uh, before. So I uh, met with them and the first line I told them is, more than likely, I'm not going to invest in your company because I'm not currently looking at semiconductor startups. And boy, 45 minutes later, I was a fool. What convinced you? I think the market is phenomenal. The team, I mean, this is basically had, I think, four out of the top, uh, the first 20 people of Atheros are here. So getting the chip done was not an uncertainty for me. Right? It'll get done. There was no questions whatsoever about that. The team, the quality was never an issue. The ability to get it done was not an issue. The market in terms of the IoT markets, uh, the headphones, uh, you know, like I'm using an AirPod today, right? And an AirPod, you need to put it into this charging device and plug the charging device in. Here, I don't need that. You can charge it with, a, with RF. I can just leave it on my table and it's getting charged. Uh, you know, fundamentally changing the way we look at batteries, it was crystal clear to me, did the round, we wanted to lead it, but, you know, somebody else uh, jumped on it the next day and met with them the previous week, gave them a term sheet. Then it became kind of a fist fight of trying to get our way back into it, but we managed to do that with David and we funded it. So this is where meeting those kind of founders who can explain the technology and move you uh, is one of the very unique things that happens in the sphere. You know, I thought I would not fund it going into that meeting. So in this case, it looks like uh, you knew the founders, you had a lot of respect for them, but you had a negative yeah. disposition even before going into the meeting and you didn't think that you were going to move forward. But during that meeting, they changed your mind and they converted a non-believer to a believer. Is that common? Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily 100% common, but out of the 18 companies we have done, three were decisions like that, where, you know, 20, 30 minutes into it, you're looking at it and you're saying, God, we got to do this. And these are for a seed stage company where all this is ideas on a, on a person's head. Sometimes there is not even a good PowerPoint slide. It is just them explaining it to you on a whiteboard. And I think, you know, for me, that is paradise. That I thoroughly enjoy. I know a lot of VCs on Sandal Road uh, goes down the how beautiful a presentation it is. I, on the other hand, you know, want the technologist to show me why he or she can build a team, build a product. And obviously the market is something that we have to do our diligence on uh, and make sure that the market exists. So this is sort of the only two things you can look at at the seed stage. At the seed stage, all you can look at uh, which is where, you know, 95% of our investments are, 
all you have is the technologists and some aspects of uh, the market definition that we can conjure ourselves and uh, get uh, drive to a conviction to do the investments. So in this early stage uh, funding business, this is a very important thing uh, that I have learned as I transition myself into being a coach. I see a, a thread here. You, What you say is that you are open to new ideas and you want to be challenged and it's okay to prove you wrong and you really enjoy the process. Are there situations where uh, it takes more than one meeting to convince you? Oh, even if, uh, you know, 45 minutes we decided we want to do, there is obviously subsequent work that is done, which is, you know, making sure you're doing the references on the people, you know, what skeletons do they have? And I'm not worried about having some skeletons, but, you know, you do need to do the diligence that, that needs to happen. You need to check the market. You need to realize that there may be others who are already beginning to do. So there's work to be done. But, you know, more than ever, more than ever, then it's just making sure that your conviction is right and that this is a right probable market direction that this company could take to be successful is what you're trying to prove during that process. So the spark was lit, but you still needed to fan the spark, build the flame and see if there was a clear potential before you. Yeah, it, it doesn't take a long effort after that. And, you know, I mean, um, but it does nonetheless take an effort of a, a lot of meetings and spending time with the founders to make that happen. What if the spark doesn't happen in the first meeting? Do you typically walk away or? I think that's quite unlikely that you will get a second chance because the reality is this, right? We see a lot of companies in Silicon Valley, right? So if you have got to take the number of companies we are seeing, the first meeting is very, very important, right? I mean, so going through that meeting and, and understanding it, if there is no spark at that time and you're not bought into the market, chances are very low that you would actually come around to liking it in subsequent meetings. This, by the way, is not just me. I think, you know, when pitched to most VCs, if you're not having a first meeting, which is very successful, it runs on you where they may come back and do it in subsequent round because you've executed. But in that same round, it is actually much more difficult uh, to get the ball moving. In my case, it's at least very, very difficult to do that. So entrepreneurs have one chance to make a good impression on the first meeting. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's a stress on them on the first <laughs> meeting as much as, you know, the, the technology that is in, and is the right market, right? They just have to go. But having said that, I have to tell you, I mean, there are people who have come with different ideas to me after that, right? After six months, come and said, yeah, you pointed out these issues. We didn't believe it. We tried it. And now we are doing something new. And, you know, there is no penalty for somebody trying something. This That actually shows that you're an entrepreneur. You have to keep doing that until you succeed. So you have to know which is right. And you have to take the input of the market. And if the market has spoken, you know, the ability of the entrepreneur to be able to read a little bit into it will be nice. Though I have to give you, in my own second company, I had, you know, 35 venture firms on Sandal Road, which said no to me at Amber. And, uh, you know, I did not listen. I raised 750K from 50 private investors. That is what Ambit was all about, right? It was all sorts of uh, private investors with $10,000, $15,000 investment into it. And we created a technology. So I have to give that advice to the founders that, you know, go with your conviction. And if you're absolutely believing in it, any of us in, on Sandal Road who believes we are, we're, we're good investors 
are all idiots when it comes to it in front of your conviction and your skills. It takes a lot of fortitude to keep pitching to investors like you did. You like to see that resilience in an entrepreneur. Yeah, in the case of Ambit, because I had Gordon Bell on my board of directors, uh, you know, Gordon was the founder of Vax PDP Tech and at, uh, at DEC, and obviously DEC was the king of computing at that time, and he had just left DEC. I could get meetings everywhere. I mean, he would send an email to XYC on Saddle Road, and just for deference for Gordon, they would take the meeting. And we were going up against uh, Synopsys, an entrenched market leader, uh, which had just done an IPO. And here's you know, a bunch of guys coming in and saying we'll be 10 to 100 times faster than Synopsys, and Fondas right? was a 2000 person company. So it was David versus Goliath to the extreme. But it was actually, a, you know, this is where uh, Sandal really did not understand that that market really needed somebody who could make a chip design a time come down by 10 to 20 X, which is what Ambit did. Literally got acquired for $280 million in, in a year and a half after that stage of trying to raise money, right? And the first two, one and a half years was creating the technology. But after we had a demo and a product, you know, it was pretty quick in terms of what we could achieve. But, you know, uh, conveying such technology uh, capabilities and market potential was very, very difficult to handle road. Again, uh, that is part and parcel of what needs to be done by an entrepreneur. But again, classic example of a team which stood by, did not take salary, etc., but had a conviction and stayed and won against the Goliath, essentially uh, delivering on something that seemed impossible at the, at the very beginning, and hence helped them uh, win very quickly to an exit, right? So whatever we say on Standard Road doesn't really matter. At the end of it, it's the conviction of the entrepreneur. It's, you know, if you believe in it uh, and are willing to take in the right trade-off, uh, and that is where life is difficult, right? Taking those trade-offs requires family support because I was not taking any money while at Ambit. I was putting money and was on a second mortgage when I was at uh, Ambit. So that is a level of conviction which is over the top of what needs to be achieved, right? You had extreme devotion to your startup. You shared a, quite a bit of topics here. You started with people who influenced you and unleashed a lot of potential in you, yeah. starting with your dad, your mom, professor, your manager, the founder of Cadence. And you talked about transition from being an entrepreneur, angel investor to a full-time venture capital investor. And you drilled down on specific things that you look for in an entrepreneur, especially people who can prove you wrong in a short period of time, possibly in one meeting maybe not more than that, that process of opening your eyes to something new, you really enjoy going through that process with an entrepreneur. And you you do have a lot of faith in these entrepreneurs because they are the masters of their field and they know a lot, lot more than anybody else on the planet on that topic. This is a, a lot to cover. Uh, I'm sure we can spend a lot more time uh, and we can keep talking about it. And that's why I keep coming back to you and I, I learn a lot from your experience. Let's switch to what you do outside of work. Can you talk about uh, your involvement in a community activity that you're passionate about? I involve myself in three community activities, but uh, one of them which I'm very proud of what I've done is, is for example, Akshay Patra, which feeds several million kids a day in India. These are impoverished kids who come to school only for the, their food. And they bring their sisters and everyone, and the program, the food and the meal program, 
that the government has put in India does not meet any requirement of a nutritious meal for the kids, right? So this is a system which has built automated kitchens. I think, you know, if you look at Akshay Bhatta and you look at their kitchens on YouTube, uh, you'd be blown away. Using signs to solve the issues, those have a, a particularly soft uh, you know, interest for a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, I'm sure, in Silicon Valley. So they have done great. Uh, you know, so there are a couple of these programs that I or my wife uh, does get involved. Uh, was involved with UCLA when the university had to make a transition. Was on the board for a while when we had to make a transition from you know purely funded by Uncle Sam to having to raise endowments to actually get there. So that, you know, there are a couple of social uh, and charitable programs. I'm probably 10 years away from co-opting something on my own and running uh, and doing it full time. Uh, 10 to 15 years ago, uh, from now, I could see myself just doing that. It's great to see that you make time for these activities. I'm going to stay close and watch to see what you unleash in 10 to 15 years when you're ready for that venture. Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.